Hi, everyone. This is Rachel Elihus, Deputy Director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm thrilled to welcome everyone to a brand new CSIS podcast series, NATO's Road to Madrid. The purpose of this series is to explain how NATO is approaching a critical process it hasn't undertaken since 2010, namely updating its strategic concept, which allies will endorse in the summer of 2022 at the NATO Summit in Madrid, hence our podcast name. The last time the alliance got together and agreed on a formal strategy, the world was very different. For example, Russia had not yet invaded Ukraine, and there was still hope of a real partnership between Moscow and the West. China was not yet thought to be a challenge meriting NATO's attention. And defense planners hadn't really started thinking too deeply about the military implications of climate change, hybrid warfare, or other new challenges. In this podcast series, we'll discuss everything on NATO's agenda as it adapts to this new era. Russia and China, of course, but also climate change, relations with the European Union and other partners, societal resilience, disinformation, emerging technologies, and the list goes on. We'll also talk about how challenges from inside the alliance complicate NATO's ability to respond effectively. This includes strains in the broader transatlantic relationship, democratic backsliding in certain member states, and bilateral tensions between others. We're very excited to bring these debates to you, and along the way, we'll also try to help make sense of the inner workings of NATO, which can be quite opaque from the outside. In this first episode of NATO's Road to Madrid, I'm here with two brilliant guests to talk about the evolution of NATO's security environment and priorities from the NATO summit in Lisbon in 2010 to the forthcoming NATO summit in Madrid in July 2022. Our first guest is Ambassador Alexander Vershbaugh, a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council, former Deputy Secretary General of NATO, and former U.S. Ambassador to Russia. Ambassador Vershbaugh was also the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs in 2010, and my former boss, I should add, and was in all the important rooms during the development of the 2010 strategic concept. There's really no one better to talk about that process and what's changed since then, especially with respect to the NATO-Russia relationship. Our second guest is a current NATO official deeply involved in the alliance's ongoing evolution, Ambassador Baiba Braja, NATO's Assistant Secretary General for Public Diplomacy. Ambassador Braja is also a former ambassador of Latvia to the United Kingdom, among other postings during her distinguished career in the Latvian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Welcome to you both. Ambassador Braja, I want to start by asking you about the NATO 2030 agenda, a process of reflection that was kickstarted by NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg last year. The insights from this process are supposed to feed directly into the NATO summit deliverables, as well as the strategic concept itself. Can you tell us a bit about NATO 2030 and how it will influence the summit? Indeed, NATO 2030 is not only a slogan, it's actually a continuation of what NATO has done so successfully for these last 70 plus years. It is preparing the alliance to protect the 30 allies and about a billion citizens against all threats. And what it means is that the leaders this summer in Brussels took a set of decisions to uh, make sure that the alliance is indeed ready. So the first one is in, uh, was to really strengthen the transatlantic bond and to make sure that the allies recommit. It's not only US 
to Europe, but Europe to the US. And uh, that is done through increasing consultations on topical issues. So we have had quite a number of US leaders briefing us and uh, also SecGen has been to the DC and we are engaging with a whole set of different uh, partners across the board for that. We also agreed to adjust and strengthen and reinforce the deterrence and defense. And there is a whole set of decisions that you might have heard about, uh, the defense and deterrence of the Euro-Atlantic area concept. Also the more sort of digital part of adaptation, making sure that data and investment in capabilities that are uh, data related, such as you will have heard of the Allied Ground Surveillance System, the big global hawk that can fly and see more than 1,000 square kilometers, uh, that such capabilities are also strengthened in the future. And that is done through making sure that there is defense spending that is at the level needed for these capabilities, but also adjustment of the force structure, adjustment of, of you know, how we uh, react, the situational awareness, uh, what we understand that is happening, how we respond through this adaptation. Of course, it's impossible without uh, strengthening our societies, because again, if we speak about the metadata and the digitalization of everything, the societies, our citizens are the ones that also have to be understanding and ready to respond, whether that's on cyber, whether it's disinformation, whether it's on other issues, our societies need strengthening. And of course, it also relates to issues such as critical infrastructure. And lastly, uh, I'm sure that uh, you will ask uh, Ambassador Wojbo that uh, leaders agreed to uh, work on a new strategic concept to be accepted and adopted at the, at the Madrid summit in, in summer of 2022. That is uh, the second most important document after the Washington Treaty, and it doesn't come very often. And of course, all the strategic changes that we discussed will have to be reflected in that document. Thank you for that excellent introduction, Madam Ambassador. I think what I heard you saying about the NATO 2030 agenda is that it certainly includes for our listeners some familiar elements like deterrence and defense, but then it also brings in some new elements, such as working with the private sector, thinking about digitalization and resilience of our critical infrastructure. So that's certainly a broad task that involves a number of actors, and we'll look forward to hearing more of that as we go through the podcast. Ambassador Virchbell, I wanted to turn to you exactly on this NATO strategic concept. What is it exactly, and, and why is NATO looking at an update just now? Thanks very much, and it's, it's great to be uh, with Ambassador Braja today. As the name implies, a strategic concept is, uh, is an official document that both describes the enduring purposes of, of NATO, uh, but also lays out in more concrete terms its fundamental security tasks in the current and future security environment. It's a future-oriented document, and it will be kind of the vehicle for ensuring that the Allies can achieve the vision set out in the NATO 2030 initiative and all the many different strands of work that Ambassador Braja alluded to, recognizing that the security environment continuously evolves. And I think today I th there's consensus that NATO probably faces the most complex series of threats and challenges in its history. Strategic concepts have been part of the Alliance's way of doing business even in the Cold War. Uh, in those days, security focused on deterrence. The documents were secret, uh, laying out military plans and, and requirements uh, and the force contributions that allies needed to uh, provide. 
Beginning in 1991 with the end of the Cold War, those strategic concepts have been uh, public documents, uh, and they've been issued roughly every uh, decade or so. And I, I would say that they're both a, a vision statement and a mission statement. Since the end of the Cold War, the vision has been to promote a Europe whole, free, and at peace, and uh, to extend the community of democracies through security cooperation. And at the same time, the mission has, has changed as different priorities have uh, come up on the net. Crisis management in the 90s was enshrined in the 1999 strategic concept, for example. In uh, the most recent one in Lisbon in 2010, there was continuous effort on crisis management, but terrorism had risen to the top of the charts of the threats facing NATO. But also there were efforts to narrow the potential scope of use of nuclear weapons in alliance strategy. So I think for a lot of reasons, there's a sense that the alliance needs an update right now. Most importantly, Russia has been treated as a partner in the three post-Cold War strategic concepts, and that's clearly no longer the reality that we face, unfortunately. And so uh, we need a strategic concept that catches up with the uh, sea change in relations with Russia that occurred with the invasion of Ukraine in 2014. But of course, there's many other threats alongside the Russian threat that need to be taken into account. The rise of China, uh, increasing transnational threats from uh, terrorism and migration to climate change, uh, future pandemics, and of course, the breakdown in most of the arms control regimes, with the exception of the New START Treaty, also raises new questions about future strategic stability. So strategic concept will set the alliance's course. It's kind of a renewal of vows building on the original vows in the Washington Treaty and is meant to kind of set the, the course for the alliance for, for at least the next 10 years to NATO 2030 and, uh, and beyond. Thank you, Ambassador. That's a perfect alignment between NATO 2030 and the strategic concept. And I really appreciate this characterization of the strategic concept as vision and mission. And the hooks that you see in the strategic concept often then reappear in different strategies or initiatives in the alliance in those subsequent 10 years. You alluded to some of the most significant changes in this more complex external security environment. Ambassador Braja, I was wondering if, if you could comment on what you see as some of the most significant changes, either in the external security environment or, or possibly even inside the NATO alliance that have taken place since the Lisbon summit in 2010. The strategic environment and the changes in that, indeed, when we look at 2014, but also already before the indications that were there of Russia's systematic behavior, meaning aggressive actions, that resulted in an actual invasion into Ukraine and illegal annexation of a territory of another country. And that was the ultimate breakage of the international commitments that Russia had taken freely upon itself and a total violation of any principles, be it the UN or OIC or, or anything that we had agreed. And of course, that strategically changed the whole calculus. And NATO, NATO indeed started its big adaptation already shortly afterwards, establishing a new division, Joint Intelligence Security Division, to make sure that we are strategically and situationally really aligned and aware so allies are exchanging intelligence and briefing each other much more regularly. And that has strengthened this uh, center of gravity, this unity of the alliance that enables decision making. And it's important, of course, to continue to do that. From other hand, of course, we saw that China's uh, sort of much more 
concentrated investment in its defense capabilities, but not only, also other capabilities really came to the fore in these last few years. And also the behavior, you know, suppressing the human rights and not engaging into open dialogue. In the same time, of course, China can be a partner. And I mentioned already earlier the climate issues. We need China to work with the rest of international community, including with NATO on climate and security issues. On arms control, as Ambassador Wijbom mentioned, we have seen China investing quite a lot in its uh, military capabilities, from nuclear to navy to conventional space uh, we have seen cyber attacks that allies attributed to China this year. So all this, of course, requires adjustment to the, and adaptation to the alliance, but also it requires engagement from Chinese side and allies have clearly, and Sekjian has clearly, clearly uh, said that. Also, issues such as technology, the climate and security, as I mentioned, it has effect on NATO and, and we need to take those decisions. So that strategic change, I think, is a strategic sort of competition with more authoritarian regimes where we need partners and friends both trying to understand what it means for us but also taking action is i think the main change thank you well well certainly we've already have three big strategic shifts there the shift in the relationship between nato and russia and how that's changed over time. As you alluded to the mention of China, I think the first time we saw a mention of China was in the 2019 summit communique. And so that's a very real concern among allies is, is how they tackle NATO's role in, in, in managing the China challenge. And then finally, you spoke about all the challenges with, with arms control and resilience. There's another shift that I'd like to turn to Ambassador Birschbaugh to address, and this is the balance between European allies and the United States. We're looking at a Europe that you know has really grown in terms of influence and economic power. So Ambassador Birschbaugh, could I ask you to comment on the impact this change in balance between Europe and the United States within NATO either has had or should have on things like burden sharing and calls for greater strategic autonomy or strategic responsibility, whereby European allies step up to take on more of the security burden. Yeah, this is, I think, an important uh, issue that allies need to address perhaps more than they have been successful in addressing it so far. Because I think it's fair to say that the balance between the United States and Europe, or between the United States and the rest of the allies, I don't want to forget Canada, has shifted a little bit in recent years as uh, the European allies have increased their defense spending, They've contributed to NATO crisis management operations. They've contributed to the improved defense and deterrence posture that NATO has been developing since uh, 2014 and the uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine. But I think the overall picture remains both uh, unsatisfactory in political terms, and it could be unsustainable uh, going forward in defense terms because of the uh, additional threats and challenges that NATO now has to worry about and need to be reflected in the strategic concept. I think the alliance and the European members of the alliance in particular remain overly reliant on the United States for collective defense uh, along the most vulnerable part of NATO's frontier, the eastern flank. And at the same time, when it comes to crisis management, the European allies, again, are overly dependent on the United States for some of the key capabilities that are needed to enable expeditionary operations, things like air-to-air -air refueling, heavy airlift, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. I mean, it's great that the European Union aspires to be a strategic player, but it won't be able to do that in practice without the capabilities to back it up. So I think the new strategic concept is an opportunity 
to try to uh, set the alliance and the wider transatlantic community on a path toward a much more balanced alliance. And this could become, I, I hope, it will become a, a goal for NATO 2030. In, in a sense, what I'm talking about channeling European aspirations for what the French call strategic autonomy, what others might call strategic responsibility, in the direction of a stronger European pillar of NATO. And I would say this is not only something that's nice to have, that would be optional, but rather it's essential because the United States is going to have to shift a lot of its attention and some of its military assets to the Indo-Pacific region to deal with the expanding threat from China. And at the same time, the U.S. may no longer give us high priority to some of the operations in and around Europe's neighborhood, which it may rightfully say Europe should now take primary responsibility for. So I would like to see in the strategic concept the vision of a more balanced alliance that would see the European allies stepping up to do more of the collective defense mission with the United States and perhaps becoming the first responder to crises in and around Europe in lieu of the United States, or at least taking more responsibility off the shoulders of the United States so that the pivot to Asia will not leave the uh, defense of Europe in any way diminished or degraded. This would be a win-win, and I think it would be commensurate with the wealth of European members of the alliance and the potential for them to field much stronger military capabilities uh, than they have right now. Thank you, Ambassador. That call for, for a rebalance between the various NATO allies is certainly something that we've seen President Biden discussing pretty actively with President Macron, and exactly how that shakes out you know, remains to be seen. But for example, some of the capability shortfalls that you mentioned in terms of enablers, such as intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, refueling, and strategic lift, we can see that already back at the Lisbon summit, there was an aspiration to fill those shortfalls. So certainly it's a call to action that's been there for some time, but perhaps with this renewed sense of purpose, we can find that rebalance. Ambassador Braja, I wanted to pick up on that theme of NATO-EU cooperation because you mentioned the need to protect critical infrastructure. And a term we're hearing a lot these days in NATO circles and EU circles is resilience. Can you help define for our listeners what resilience actually means and how NATO and the EU might work together on this, or in fact are already working together to build resilience? Again, resilience as uh, sort of de facto enabler of defense is nothing new. It's actually in the Article 3 of uh, Washington Treaty where allies are asked to take uh, responsibility for the necessary uh, national measures, but also it's a collective responsibility to enable the countries to defend themselves. Uh, the way, you know, it has been deciphered is the ability of a nation, a country and the government to deal with the shock or crisis and to recover from it. Again, you know, at NATO, it is the transatlantic platform of cooperation of, of the uh, topical issues of defense and security of the 30 allies. And of course, it's here where the allies brought the wish to build on, on different experiences, you know, on the best practices as they have had. And uh, NATO took the lead and we have worked on and developed so-called baseline requirements or where the, how the allies can advance and measure uh, their resilience. And that uh, has to do with the ability, for example, of national health systems to support the uh, military, but also to, to support the overall functioning 
of the country during a conflict or crisis. It has to do with the efficient transportation and logistics system. It has to do with telecommunication system, but also with communications. The new element there is the 5G, as I mentioned. Indeed, now it's also a wider understanding of resilience as resilient societies where we have groups and individuals that are both able to understand the threats uh, that they face or the challenges on cyber or, for example, the hostile influences and disinformation as individuals and groups, but also the private sector that has those instruments, uh, has technologies and is able to be part of the response. So both the governments having the business continuity, the private sector, that knows its role and it has the technologies, means and abilities to respond, but also societies, individuals, academia and media that is part of that response. So it's a whole society resilience uh, that the allies have discussed. And again, across the 30, there are different uh, experiences and different uh, ways uh, how countries lead with that. But this is, this is very much the road ahead and very much on all the 30 allies' mind that they do. And with the EU, of course, we share because uh, EU can do a lot uh, through its means and uh, through tools that it has, be it regulation, be it military mobility enhancement and enablement. So it's a daily, daily cooperation with our, our EU colleagues, both in the Commission, but also in the External Action Service to understand external influences and find common responses. Thank you, Ambassador. I wanted to pick up on this idea of, of the complexity of the security environment, because of course, if we look back to the 2010 NATO strategic concept, it calls on NATO to maintain, and I quote, an appropriate mix of conventional nuclear and missile defense forces. Uh, based on our conversation today, though, I'm hearing a lot of new domains and a lot of new areas that, that need to be taken into consideration. So. Ambassador Vershbell, how relevant is, is that triad there? And do we need to add newer domains, such as cyber and space, when NATO revisits the strategic concept over the coming months? The appropriate mix would need at least to be uh, re-examined. I, I think there was a certain logic 10 years ago focusing, of course, on conventional and nuclear, which were the, the mainstays of alliance defense going back decades, but also the increasing role of missile defense, which NATO at the Lisbon summit adopted at the highest levels as, as a fundamental mission of alliance military forces. But uh, as you mentioned, NATO now has to worry about other domains, the cyber domain, space, where we have critical assets on which our military and our societies depend, increasingly vulnerable to new technologies, new, new systems being deployed by Russia, by China, and maybe other adversaries as well. So exactly how this translates into military capabilities needs to be discussed. And there, there may be a need to emphasize the need for comprehensive cyber defenses, including both offensive cyber as well as protecting cyber networks. And when it comes to space, I think you know, we would hope to see any effort to expand arms control negotiations to include China to get a handle on their demonstrated anti-satellite capabilities. But if we don't, we may need to think about what the alliance is going to need to do either collectively or through setting requirements for those members who have space capabilities to create more of a balance of power and to create deterrence against threats to our critical space assets. So that's the kind of thing that a strategic concept is supposed to do. It's supposed to kind of look at uh, not just where we are today, but where we're going to be over the next decade and decide whether the requirements that we set for our armed forces 10 years ago need to be updated. And that could include 
an appropriate mix that goes beyond the the original three to include space and cyber as new priorities for uh, allied armed forces. If I may also just to note that, of course, uh, cyber was included as one of the domains and it's integrated in all the exercises and everything we do. And again, NATO is a platform where allies work together on a daily basis, sharing information on the attack, sharing responses, exercising the red teaming exercises and everything that you can possibly imagine that is necessary. And also we just released the new cyber defense policy where we do recognize that cyberspace is contested all the time, all the time. So there is no uh, sort of moment of peace in the cyberspace. And that means that allies have to be ready. So it's again, it's a national and both collective responsibility. And on space, indeed, space policy has been also adopted and it was included as one of the domains. And that is both the, again, military civilian, because it uh, deals starting from all the communications, the satellites enabling any operations that we have, any data exchanges of both the defensive offensive capabilities. But it also uh, has to do with understanding what our, our potential adversaries are doing and how we best can respond and defend ourselves wherever threats come from. Thank you for that addendum. I, I was going to note for our listeners also that cyber threats actually can also trigger Article 5. So it's important to understand how it does fit into the training and the exercises and the doctrine. And, you know, Ambassador Virchval, you made this, this distinction between NATO and national capabilities. And, and often when we're in this evolutionary process of getting NATO to take on board new challenges and built it into NATO doctrine, one way to walk slowly into that, as was seen with offensive cyber is to lean on the capabilities of those nations who might be further ahead in terms of their doctrine or their use of those capabilities. So I think we'll we'll possibly see a, a similar evolution on, on hybrid in space, but stay tuned. So I just have you know one final question for Ambassador Braja, and it's also about another evolution in NATO that I've seemed to have seen since 2010, and particularly in the last decade. So NATO has these three core tasks of collective defense defense, crisis management, and cooperative security. And in 2010, NATO's focus was very much on crisis management, in particular, ISAF in Afghanistan and other out-of-area operations. I was wondering, Ambassador, if you anticipate a shift back to or more of a focus on collective defense this time. You know, I would not speculate on this. It's very clear where we at 30 stands, the 2030 decisions, public decisions, and a lot of work going at, you know, both civilian and military side of the houses on preparing NATO for the future on the basis of, of those decisions is just there. The strategic concepts, you know, the discussion will be ongoing, how we formulate the core tasks, we will see sometime in July next year, it will be publicly launched. <laughs> so I'm sure that that the allies will find the language that is appropriate to sort of formulate what is topical now and for the future for our great transatlantic alliance. Ambassador Virchval, did you have anything you wanted to add on that last question? Well, on the core tasks, the three that were agreed will likely remain. There's some debate about whether resilience, which is already becoming a major preoccupation, as Ambassador Braja explained, uh, deserves to be singled out as a it's a separate fourth core task, so we'll see how that evolves. But I think de facto, NATO's focus on defense and deterrence since 2014 has, in practice, elevated collective defense above all the others, because the only existential threat the alliance faces today 
which it didn't face before 2014, is uh, potential direct aggression from Russia. Russia is kind of a persistent and immediate threat, as is international terrorism. But we'll see on, on the core task. But I think the area of the strategic concept that does require the most revision is the broader strategy towards Russia that was reflected in the uh, 2010 document. Because back in 2010, Russia was still treated as a partner. We said there was no imminent conventional threat to the alliance. Clearly, uh, the world has changed. Sadly, Russia doesn't want to be a partner anymore. And I think that uh, that needs to be taken into account, even though I think we should make a partnership with Russia, the long-term strategic goal. We, we hope to get back on the path of partnership, but it's not going to be easy. But I think where, where allies also need to do some serious thinking in this uh, strategic concept review is on the strategy we've enunciated toward Russia called the two-track strategy, in which we are pursuing both dialogue and uh, defense and uh, deterrence at the same time. The fact of the matter is, and it's only been emphasized by Russia's closure of its mission to NATO and, and the NATO counterpart offices in Moscow, uh, that dialogue is pretty much moribund right now. And the Russians are continuing to behave provocatively. They uh, sadly, I think, have the initiative in many respects. And I would argue that the alliance needs to consider a much more dynamic, a much more proactive approach to Russia to try to retake the initiative and try to create more pressure on Russia to change some of its aggressive behavior and return to the path of partnership that we would like to see. But that will be a controversial debate because it involves perhaps taking more risks, more sticks as well as carrots to try to actually change Russia's behavior in ways that we've been unable to do despite the intentions of our two-track approach uh, over the last few years. So lots of tough issues and no shortage of challenges. So I'd like to thank you both for your time and your thoughtful answers. And this podcast series will continue and it's going to dive in and look at each of these issues in turn, everything from arms control to climate to deterrence and defense. So that's to be continued. But for today, thank you ambassadors for that excellent opening and overview of what NATO has on its plate on this road to Madrid. And thanks to our listeners. And thank you to CSIS for hosting us. It's good to have friends. Thanks very much, Rachel. It's been a pleasure. All right, everyone. That was the first episode of NATO's Road to Madrid, a new podcast from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. A big thank you again to Ambassadors Braja and Verspau and to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please consider checking out the CSIS website, subscribing to the podcast on your platform of choice, and leaving us a rating and review. Either way, we hope you'll check out our next episode coming soon, where we'll dive into our first big subject, the changing nature of deterrence and defense. It's no secret that tanks, planes, and missile defense are not enough to keep a country safe anymore. And we're going to talk about how NATO is dealing with all the new, more complex, and more interconnected threats on the horizon. Until next time.